takes me a while to get all situated. It's good to see you all. And since we're talking about rewards today, I wanted to say that there is probably a special reward for those who come to Bible study instead of going out of town for spring break. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure there is one, so we'll all, we'll all discover that one day. And it is a beautiful spring day, and so I found this fun thing about a... It was a grandmother who was reminiscing about the springtimes in her life. So she's telling her little granddaughter what her own childhood was like. And she said, we used to go outside and pick flowers. And I had a swing made from a tire. And it hung from a tree in our front yard. And we rode a pony. And we picked wild raspberries in the woods. And her little granddaughter was listening, taking all this in. And then she said, I sure wish I'd gotten to know you sooner. (laughs) Okay, here was the last grandmother one. This woman says, When my grandson asked me how old I was, I teasingly replied, I'm not sure. And he said, Look in your underwear, Grandma, because mine says I'm four. (laughs) I wish we were the age of our underwear. (laughs) Okay, we have been listening to the words of Jesus. We're still on the hilltop at the Sea of Galilee. We're learning what it means to be his disciple. We've been looking at the fact that it begins on our inside. And today Jesus is going to talk about three outward activities that demonstrate our faith. And the point he wants to make is that righteousness is between a person and God. And remember when you were a little girl and you were doing some little trick that you thought was wonderful, like you're in a pool, which is kind of mostly where it happens. And so you're doing this little trick and you're yelling, Mom! Mom! Watch this! And you're yelling. Of course, your mom's always talking to somebody. Remember that? You know, you're in the pool. Your mom doesn't want to get her hair messed up, so she's talking to somebody. And so you're yelling, Mom, Mom. She finally looks, and you do something really unamazing, like step off the diving board. And then you just watch, and then she waves, and you're just so happy, and you swim away. And you realize, you know, the trick really wasn't what was important. What was important was that our mom saw the trick because then somehow the trick seemed a lot bigger than it really was. When we look at these three practices of faith, giving and praying and fasting, the Pharisees and the religious leaders thought they were doing these great things, but they were really like simple tricks. And they thought, if I do these things somehow in the marketplace, and I say, look at me, watch me, and I say it loud enough, and I attract some people's attention, then it really will be a significant thing in my life. But they really were tricks because they weren't coming from their heart. They were coming out of a sense of obligation, and they were also coming out of a need for them to be honored by men like when we were little girls. And so they waved around, practicing these three things, somehow feeling more important if they could get other people's attention. But righteousness is between a person 
and God, and it didn't matter how much they gave or prayed or fasted, as long as it was focusing on getting attention from other people and not from God, it was not righteousness at all. It was a trick put on for the approval of other men. And Jesus says, when that's our motive, we receive no reward from God. Look at Matthew 6, 1. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. I want to look at the idea of rewards before we go on. On your outline, God needs no external display to attract his attention. This was truly almost impossible for the Jews to believe back then. And sometimes I look around today and think it's, it's hard for Christians sometimes to believe this today either, that God doesn't need to see external things in our life. He's much more focused on what is in the recesses of our heart. In fact, look at Matthew 7. On your verse sheet, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. God's looking for our attitude, our motive. He sees in secret. And so it's better not to give if we don't really want to. It's better not to pray if we resent that we're supposed to. It's better not to go visit our neighbor if we're angry that we have to. It's better to start working on our heart first. And when our heart is right, even before we start to do external things, God begins to reward us before we even step across our neighbor's threshold. I also thought about rewards that good deeds can't merit more than one reward. There are two types of rewards depending on the motive. If it's done for men's glory, then man has already received the reward that he's going to get, and that's the praise and the recognition from men. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you are paid in full. If your motive is to impress men, you get the recognition, you're done. You are paid in full. God doesn't reward man-pleasers because they rob God of glory that belongs to him alone. But if we perform a righteous act in a simple devotion to God, then these are the most wonderful passages for us to hold on to. We are rewarded by God himself. What an incredible promise. Good deeds can't merit more than one reward. To gain it from men is to lose it from God. Now, this doesn't mean that if someone notices that you did something that was righteous and they are excited about it and they say something to you about it, doesn't mean that all of a sudden your reward with God is gone. What it means that you were never doing that act to try to get that recognition in the first place. Also on your outline, rewards have nothing to do with our personal merit. God lavishes good things on the objects of his love, but a reward has nothing to do with our own personal merit. It has everything to do 
with his great and good generosity. And I know that there's some prosperity churches that teach um, giving to God is good business because you'll get your capital back with some massive interest. But we will never be able to manipulate God into rewarding us based on something that we think we deserve. We deserve nothing. We cling to the unending mercy of God. Look at Psalm 103. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. We can meet God's merciful requirements for rewards, but we really never truly earn them. We rely on his generosity and his goodness. Psalm 143 says, No one living is righteous before you. We count on God's generosity. And God doesn't, Jesus doesn't really tell us in these passages we're about to read what those specific rewards are, but we know that God's rewards are so much greater than men's rewards. I read the story of this guy who was this big athlete in high school, and, and he just took such pride in it. And you know how, in, I don't know if your high school did this, but you had a glass case, and people from like 50 years ago, their names would be engraved on trophies and plaques. And so this guy was going back for his 30-year reunion. He'd won some remarkable things in the school. He had been used to seeing his name on that plaque. Well, 30 years has gone by. He goes back to the school. He runs to the glass case, presses his nose against it, and there's the same exact plaques with somebody else's name. Rewards for a man are fleeting. Men only stay impressed for about that long. God's rewards are eternal, and they are internal, and they bring us to a deeper spiritual place. And rewards are more about giving than about receiving. Our motive for rewards is the anticipation of one day giving them back to God. The New Testament tells us there are different crowns that we will be receiving when we get to heaven. Eternal glory, the crown of righteousness, the crown of life. And in the book of Revelation, we see that 24 elders taking those crowns and casting them at the feet of Christ, at the throne of of Christ. Look at Revelation 4. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. And really, doesn't this go against what is happening with some well-meaning Christians today? who have given us methods to follow so we can have the perfect blessed life on earth, so that we can pursue God and our motive being to get special things, special blessings that we use for our own selfish pleasures. But all that we do is to focus on him and his glory, not to receive rewards and hang on to them so we can create a perfect world in our lives. We are receiving rewards to give honor 
and glory to him and one day to throw those rewards down at his feet and continue to praise and honor him. Our focus is never to make our life easier and more blessed. Our focus is always to bring more and more glory to God. Jesus tells us how to do that in each of these disciplines, starting with righteous giving. Look at verse 2 in chapter 6. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. I thought it was interesting. For the Jews, giving or almsgiving was the most sacred of all their duties. In fact, the word for giving was the exact same word for righteousness. So in the Jews' mind, righteousness and giving were one of the same. And they felt like if we give enough, we will gain merit from God. We will have our sins atoned for. They even had in the temple a little area called the silent chamber. And they would go in and sometimes just set money down and leave. And poor people were allowed later on to come in and maybe take some of that money and do what they want with it which would have been a neat practice, except that they slowly had gotten away from that and had become more and more interested in making sure that people saw that they were givers. It was done for the approval of man, and this is who Jesus is talking about here. And so they announced their giving with trumpets, which is amazing. I really tried to find more about that. I must have read five books and nobody knew anything else about it. But I think it's probably where we got the expression, don't toot your own horn. I mean, that is basically what they were doing. And Jesus says, paid in full. Admiration from men. They are paid in full. So I looked up some other verses about how we are to give. I want us to look at those. In this passage, obviously, first we're called to give privately. He says the right hand uh, should not know what the left hand is doing, which most people are right-handed. So this is where, in a normal day's work, most of the activity happened. Your left hand didn't even need to get involved often. And his point here is I will reward the kind of giving that not only your left hand doesn't even know it, people don't even, you don't even know it. It's done, it's unrecognized by men, but it's totally seen by me. That's what God wants to reward. We give as partners with God because when we give as God's partner, we are investing in the purposes of God. It's amazing that we have that privilege. While we're here waiting to be with him, he uses us, he gives us resources so we can give that out in the world to accomplish what he wants, like taking care of the poor. Look at 2 Corinthians 9. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will reap generously. Material seeds reap spiritual blessings. If everything we have is given to us by God, we have to be faithful to use it, not for just our purposes. We are faithful to use it. For the purposes of God. 
I'm his partner. What are we doing next, God? Those of you that have seen God use your finances in these ways, isn't it just the best feeling to know you have invested in the work of God, partnering with God? Anytime I talk about giving, I have to mention Ted's dad, Charlie, because I don't know of any better example of someone who really um, didn't know the Lord till very late in life. And when he was almost 70 years old, he was so bored with life, without having direction, he got a trip to Mexico with a friend who took him to a real poverty-stricken area in Mexico, in the Jailitla Mountains, I believe, or the town was called Jailitla, Susan might know. Anyway, he had very little money, but he got there and he saw the poverty and he decided, I'm going to partner with God. And his spiritual life came alive. The difference when Charlie died about a year ago, um, those late, last you know, eight, ten years of his life were like night and day. And so he actually picked up, moved to Mexico found this little shack to live in, and figured out a way to feed the poor people that lived in the mountains in that area. And he went to all the churches to find out which families didn't have a man in the household who could help support the family. And Ted and my son and and Penny and her son got to go visit one uh, spring break. And Charlie set up his, his biggest... Joy was, you, in order to get your food, you had to watch the Jesus film. <laughs> and so he played that thing nonstop every Sunday. People came down from the mountains and they would move from chair to chair to get closer to this little storefront that he had made where he passed out misaka, which is a flour for corn tortillas, and beans. And by the time he had that up and running a few years, he was feeding a 1,000 people a month. With his meager little money, that's what he did. And what was so neat was his health got poor, and sometimes he'd have to come back to the States, and he could not wait to get back to Mexico. And I, I can't tell you how many videotapes Ted and Andy made for Charlie so he could distribute those Jesus films in Mexico. He would go back. He couldn't run his storefront anymore. So he found this vendor in the marketplace and he set up this deal with him. And Charlie would sit on a bench in the shade, and there's the marketplace, and these families would come up for produce. And if the vendor had a family come up that he knew really couldn't pay for their food or couldn't even ask for the food because they didn't have the money, he would glance over at Charlie. And Charlie would be staring at the vendor all morning. He'd give him a wave. And then the vendor would just give the people the food for free and later come to Charlie and tell him how much money that he would need to pay him. I thought, talk about not tooting your own horn. Those people never knew why they got free food every time they came to the market. God says, open your wallets. You'll be amazed at what we can accomplish together as partners. And then we give sacrificially. I thought about King David that time that he wanted to build an altar to the Lord, and so he went to a threshing floor where they would you know, be threshing the grains and the wheat. And he said to the man, you know, I'm going to build an altar to the Lord here. It's King David. Of course the guy says, it's yours. 
you take this threshing floor. And David said, I could never do that. How could I offer sacrifices to God on something that cost me nothing? He wanted to sacrifice. Generosity isn't measured by the size of the gift. Generosity is measured by the size in comparison to what is possessed. One day, Jesus sort of did this like Charlie had done, except Jesus sat down across from the temple treasury and watched people give to the temple treasury. And I like it because it's, it's a great story because he was very intentional. He wanted to teach the disciples something. And so the rich people were coming in and throwing in a lot of money. And then up comes a poor widow, and she threw in two very small coins equal to a fraction of a penny. And then Jesus calls his disciples. The passage tells us he calls them around him. And look on your verse sheet at Mark 4, 12. He calls his disciples to him, and Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all that she had to live on. That is being generous with our giving. Another thing we can know about giving is it results in greater entrustment from God to those who are not faithful with something mundane like money and possessions the Lord will not entrust us with things of greater value. On your outline, giving results in greater entrustment from God. Look at Luke 16. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. If, therefore, you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous money or mammon, Who will entrust the true riches to you? If you can't manage your own finances in a godly well, then that means there are other things in your spiritual life you are also not managing well, and God can't entrust us with spiritual responsibilities. We are called to be good stewards with his money because it is not our money. It is his money. If we act like it's ours and we treat it haphazardly, it means we don't get the big picture, and God can't let us be a part of the bigger picture of his work that's being done on earth. We're also to give cheerfully. Look at 2 Corinthians 9.7. Let each one give just as he's purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Giving should be fun. I really think the Pharisees were giving out of obligation and something they had to do and they knew it and they were trying to work their way to God. And it should actually be done out of liberty. Isn't it fun to have a specific gift in mind when you have a friend you want to buy a gift for and you find it and you give it to them and it's it's so fun. And that's exactly the feeling we're supposed to get when we come giving to God. When we are generous with that, it's not just something we do because we're a Christian. It becomes part of our worship. It's really fun for Ted when um, people over the years come and go. Some never been in a church. Some weren't raised in a church. And they listen to these ideas of tithing and giving. And they think, 
No way. And often they'll make appointments with Ted and say, I have never done this. I can't. We don't have money to give. I don't get it. And you're telling us we should give lavishly. And they'll slowly be obedient. And then they'll come back to Ted and say, we never knew. It feels right. It feels fun. And it's worshipful. We give because we want to worship God. And we know that that will make a difference in our spiritual lives. Churchill said this, we make a living by what we get. We make a life by what we give. It feels good to be generous with God's money. Let's look at righteous praying. This was another practice of the Jews, and it was so sad to me to think he uses them as examples of how not to pray. If anybody should know how to pray, it should have been the Jews. Nobody had been more favored having direct communication with God than the Jewish people. Think about Abraham, Moses, David, the judges, the prophets, the promises of God. But they didn't know how to pray. And again, their prayer lives had been corrupted by these religious traditions that the Jewish leaders had passed down over the years. Their prayers were ritualized. Their prayers were memorized. Their prayers were mechanical. It had become a routine exercise. They had a specific prayer for a specific time of day. And they prayed at 9 a.m., at noon, and at 3. And you stopped what you were doing, and you prayed, but you didn't do it because you were really wanting to commune with God. You did it to fulfill your duty and for other people to notice you. Look at verse 5 in chapter 6. When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. So the first thing we learn is don't pray to be recognized by men. Somehow it made the Pharisees feel righteous. Now when it it hit 9 a.m. or 12 or 3 Wherever they were, they stopped and they stood up while they prayed. They put their palms out and they put their heads down. This was their prayer. Now, if their motive was to be seen by men, they would make sure they were just at that time going up the synagogue steps. Lord, Lord, to be noticed. In fact, they would go to busy streets. The word street in that verse means busy intersection. They would purposefully think, oh, it's almost three. They'd hang out at Starbucks. Then they'd go to the corner, three o'clock, Lord, just to be seen by men. It's easy to fall into this temptation today. I think there are Christian leaders that fall into this temptation. I had a bulletin I was looking at last week, a newsletter of a pretty prominent Christian leader and he's in the middle of a room on his knees and he's kind of waving around and looking up and recently he had to resign for immorality and leave his pulpit. I think it can be true for us. Sometimes instead of just jumping into every prayer group situation, having to be the one to lead the prayer so people know we're spiritual to make sure that everybody knows that we do pray and we do it pretty well, 
Sometimes we need to say, what's the Spirit doing here? Who's God moving through right here? Maybe I need to hear from God before I hear my own voice. It's easy to fall into those same kind of traps that the Pharisees did. And Jesus says, and don't use dramatic repetition like they do. Look at verse 7. When you pray, don't keep on babbling like pagans. They think they'll be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. The Jews had confused eloquence with piety. And sometimes we do that. We confuse fluency with devotion. But we won't be heard from God just because we use a lot of words. It was sort of like playing a prayer, like these hypocrites. And he uses the pagans as an example. The pagans with their false gods, they believed if you just repeated something and said it and made it long, then by golly, our God's going to do what we say. Remember when Elijah was on the mountain? And he's got all these these uh, priests of Baal around him, and they're calling on their God. And from, it says, morning till nighttime, they said the same thing. Oh, Baal, answer us. Dancing, cutting themselves. Oh, Baal, answer us. The whole day long, while Elijah waited, waited for his turn to talk to the one true God. So when he finally said, are you guys finished? No answer from them. He stands up and says, God, answer me so the people will know that you are the one true God. And immediately fire comes from heaven and burns a sacrifice. The Jews of Jesus' day had not followed Elijah's example, but they had borrowed the pagans' example in prayer by repeating prayers repetitiously. One rabbi said, whoever is long in prayer will be heard. This was something they got from the pagans. Jesus says in this verse, don't be like them. Don't be like them. Why? Because prayer isn't telling God something that he already knows. And prayer isn't seeking to get God to change his mind. Prayer is not to be senseless, repetitious words. And Jesus says, because God already knows what you want before you ask him. Remember this verse in Ecclesiastes? Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. So then Jesus is so wonderful to give us an example of the kind of prayer he is talking about. We call it the Lord's Prayer, but it is actually the disciples' prayer. Look at verse 6 before we read that. Here's how Jesus says to pray. When you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. He's saying God is the audience of our prayer. It is communion with God. And when he says when you pray, what he means there is whenever you pray. In other words, don't just think I pray at 9, at noon, and at 3 because I have to. He says whenever you pray, 
come to me to commune with God. You are involved with him. You go to an inner room. This meant a small room. It even could have meant a closet. And Jesus says, shut the door. That way, you will be shutting out the temptation to make sure people know exactly what you're doing. And you won't be trying to impress people. We know from other scriptures that there are times when we pray in groups. Jesus prayed alone. Jesus also prayed in groups. But even if we're in a group, we should still be involved with God. Even righteous prayer in public can really shut us up alone in the presence of God. That's our goal because God is the audience alone of our prayers. Let's look at what he says. This is called the disciples' prayer, what we call the Lord's Prayer, but it's about teaching the disciples how to pray in a new and a better way, and it is a blueprint for prayer, and it has been passed down from the time Jesus sat on that hillside and spoke these words to the disciple, because it's precious that he says, commune with God, and I'm going to tell you how to do it. I'm going to tell you the way because I want you to have a relationship with the Father, a true relationship. Verse 9 says, This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Prayer is intimate, and it starts with God's paternity. In other words, Jesus says, call God Abba, which means, in the Aramaic, it means Father. That was a revelation. To the people sitting at the feet of Christ here, they're saying, the vengeful, dreaded, judgmental, great God, we are to call Father Nobody on that hillside had ever called God addressed that way. This was a word little children used to talk to their daddies. Jesus, who alone had that kind of relationship with God as his daddy, is willing to share that intimacy with everybody who decides to follow Christ. I thought I love what Max Lucado says about being intimate with God. He says, God saved you because he's fond of you. He likes having you around. He thinks you're the best thing to come down the pike in quite a while. If God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. If he had a wallet, your photo would be in it. He sends you flowers every spring and a sunrise every morning. When you want to talk, he'll listen. He can live anywhere in the universe, and he chose your heart. And the Christmas gift he sent you in Bethlehem, Face it, friend, he's crazy about you. I just love that. The scriptures, even in the Old Testament, had always taught that God was a father. But what would happen when over the years the Jews had flirted with all these other gods? No longer did they have that intimacy that they once were called to have with their forefathers many years before who did speak to God face to face and call him Father. They had lost that intimacy. We also learn here 
When we come, we don't come alone. He's not just my father. He's our father. There's a multitude of his children. Look at Romans 8.15. You didn't receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received a spirit of sonship, and by him we all cry, Abba, Father. The beginning of prayer is by coming into the presence of God intimately. That's how we start prayer. And then there's God's priority. Hallowed be thy name. We should not be so taken up with ourselves that we carry our shopping list into the presence of God and we immediately go at it, our list of needs. We pause. We are in the presence of God. Hallowed be his name. It means we long for his name. We revere who he is. We attribute to him the holiness that is his. And that takes some meditation. It takes some time to calm down. We focus on him to start prayer. We don't focus on ourselves. And then God's program, we focus on that. Thy kingdom come. And the word kingdom here means dominion. It's not about a place. It's about dominion. And so when we're praying, thy kingdom come, we want God's rule on earth by Jesus becoming king one day. And that's our greatest desire for the Lord to be king in his kingdom and to have the honor and authority that has always been his, but he has not yet claimed it here on this earth. We pray that the plan of the eternal deity will be fulfilled here on earth. Revelations 22 closes this way. Jesus says, He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. And here's the prayer. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Thy kingdom come. We are focused on the bigger picture. We are focused on the reign of Christ. And I think another thing to consider um, when we do that is to consider that while we're waiting for his dominion to reign, we're also praying for his dominion in those who are lost. We're praying for the salvation of the world, that he would have dominion in their hearts. We can look at God's plan then. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when we pray for that, I think we're asking two things. One, we're asking that his will will become our will. Amy Carmichael wrote this, which is wonderful. Shall I pray to change thy will, my Father, until it accord to mine? But no, Lord, no, that shall never be. Rather, I pray thee, blend my human will with thine. And again, I think there's a trend today that promotes the opposite. There are some teachings that have taken the gospel and made it simply a method or a way of just some self-fulfillment. And we see prayer as bending God's will to fit with my will, to fit with the plans I've made apart from God in my life. And we think, if I have enough faith, if I claim his promises, he will do what my desires are. He will do just what I want. 
Jesus cuts short this thinking here. He says it's about his name. It's about his kingdom. It's about his will. We pray our will will match his will. We humble ourselves before him. And secondly, we're praying that his will will prevail all over the earth as it does in heaven. It's an appeal for the sovereignty of God to be manifested here on earth just like it is in heaven. Because what's happening on earth today? There's rebellion and there's sin. But when that's been conquered, the kingdom of God will finally be on earth as it is in heaven. And that's what we're praying about. And after we pray about all those things, then we finally come to petitions. And there's three things that we petition about. We've already adored him. We've prayed for God's purposes, his will to be done, his kingdom to come. And now we pray for God's provision in our lives. Give us this day our daily bread. Bread is the staple of life. And so the word bread here isn't just talking about food. It's talking about having all our needs met in God. And when it says, give us our needs, our daily needs, we are admitting we understand everything comes from your hands. Look at James 1.17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. And do you notice it says we pray for our daily needs? That means sufficient for today. It means we aren't totally worried and anxious about tomorrow. We believe he will provide. He's the giver. And we ask for today, will you be my provider? I read this great story of this man who was planting a church and it was in Canada or somewhere. It was really cold. He relied on money from a missions field. It was very slim. And he said normally when they were low on money, he and his wife would put their head together and they would think of some way to make a dollar stretch. And he finally thought, I'm so tired. I'm so tired. I'm just going to pray for my daily bread. I'm going to trust you with that. And so he said, Father, I need $10 because I need milk and eggs and bread for my family. And he got a knock on the door. There's a man with an old tea kettle. And sometimes this pastor was known to be able to fix things. He said, can you fix this tea kettle? It's my favorite thing. The guy fixed it and was going to send the man on his way. And he put a $10 bill down on the table. And the pastor said, no, no, you don't have to pay me. He said, I want to pay you. I felt led to come and pay you. God had totally met the needs of that man who prayed in faith. And then we talk as we pray about God's pardon. It's about forgiveness. And this is also a daily discipline, our holiness needing to come from God's cleansing. Sin creates a spiritual debt that leads us to confession. The thought of debts was a very Jewish thought. And the point in these verses is that Jesus says, My disciples will recognize the deep need for daily forgiveness, and they will also recognize their deep need to daily forgive each other. Because it doesn't say... Forgive us our debts as we will try to forgive our debtors, does it? 
as we have forgiven our debtors. When we pray that prayer, we're saying, I know, that's my part. I can do that through you. Look at Matthew 6, 14 and 15. If you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive you your sins. And that doesn't mean you've lost your salvation. It means it's impossible to be in fellowship with God when we harbor a hatred in our hearts towards someone else. If we have our hands open saying, I need your pardon, God, then we receive it. If we have clenched hands and anger at someone else and we say, I need your pardon, God, he can't do it. He cannot do it because we are not repentant. And repentant is the spirit that brings forgiveness from God. Hanging on to hatred and bitterness means we cannot have those repentant hands before God. We go on then to God's protection. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So we've sought his provision. We've sought his pardon. Now we pray for protection. Jesus had just defeated Satan in the wilderness when he came to this mountainside here. He knew about him. He knew about his power. He knew about his enticement. He knew about what he would do. He knew that all evil is inspired by Satan. And this tells you how seriously Jesus thinks we need to consider it. Every day to pray for God's protection from Satan's seductions. We should never take righteousness for granted. We are always cautious that without God's protection at any moment... We could be seduced away from our first love. I read this amazing story about that happened to this pastor's family. The wife was with her little three-year-old boy and five-year-old boy at the St. Louis Zoo. And she's with a friend. And they had opened this big cat country exhibit where they let the lions out in this really big rocky area. And they put these um, sky elevators above it where you could look down on these big cats who were roaming pretty free. Well, the pastor's wife's friend had a stroller whose blanket got stuck in it. So she knelt down to help get this blanket out. It took longer than she thought. And lo and behold, when she looks up, her three-year-old and her five-year-old have gotten to a place on the sky elevator where they figured out how they can slip through this fence. It was so small. She looks up, and there on the rocks above the lions going, Mommy, we can see the lions here really well. Can you imagine how scary that would be? The woman was very smart because what she first wanted to do was scream her head off, and she knew she would upset the lions, and she might upset her two little boys who were three and five. And so she, she fell down on her knees and she opened her arms and said, Come and give me a hug. And I thought, okay. And they climbed down the rocks and ran through that fence and hugged her and she, she held on to them for dear life. And I thought, it's such a good picture of what, what this protection of God is like. It's, it's his love that surrounds us from our enemy, the lion, who roams around prowling, to try to defeat us. We have a tendency to sneak off from our first love 
He has a tendency to call us back. We pray each day for the protection of God from our enemy. And I don't know if your Bible says it, but the early church added these words to the Lord's Prayer. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. It's, to me, like this beautiful doxology. I think when they read this poem, they just thought, we've got to say something great about God at the end of this prayer. And so that became a tradition that was handed down. I want to look real quickly at righteous fasting. So look at verse 16. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they've received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. We learn two things here. First of all, Jesus expects us to fast. He says, when you fast. It's something that's part of our discipline, and it's between you and God. There's very little written about any kind of special requirements for fasting. That's between you and God. And that's the second thing we learn. It's not to be done in front of other people. It's a personal thing with you and God. On your outline, we learn from other scriptures that we don't have time to look up. Genuine fasting is always linked to purposeful prayer. It's a response to special times of testing and trials. And I looked up a lot of illustrations of people, and these are what I saw. People fasting during sorrow, fasting during grief, fasting during danger, fasting for humbling, fasting for penitence, fasting for supplication, fasting to face an important task. And again, it's a discipline to know and follow the Lord's will. I think somewhere along the line, we've misinterpreted fasting to think it's for me to beg of God to do what I want. Again, fasting is for me to see what is God doing. Get my will lined up with him. Do we fast to get God involved? No, he's already involved. We fast to get ourselves involved in what God is doing. There's a promise that sums up these three spiritual practices in our lives. Hebrews 11:6. It says this, "Without faith, it's impossible to please God, for everyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him." Righteousness is between you and God, and when we seek him through giving, through prayer, through fasting, and we seek his honor alone, God says, you will be rewarded. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this prayer. We thank you that these disciplines in our lives are not meaningless, that there is a way to do them that draws near to you and glorifies you. And I pray you be teaching us that anew every day for your glory alone. And we pray this, thanking you for this beautiful day. In Christ's holy name, amen.